0: I'm Rachel Grimm, and welcome to the podcast, With All Your Mind. I'm here to help us understand the Bible with cultural and historical context, linguistic info, and other cool stuff. Enjoy. All right, good afternoon, guys. This is Rachel, and this is With All Your Mind. And this is our last regular episode of season two. We're going to have one more episode after this, but it's just kind of like a wrapping episode where I'm going to tell you about the next season. Uh, Just a hint, there might not be one. We'll talk about that in the next episode. So you have to listen to see what's going on in my world. Okay. Um, But this is our part two of the Q&A because I had some really good questions come in. I had to do serious research for these questions. So you guys sent in really good questions. So thank you. You you know who you are. You guys that send in questions, you did a great job. You sent in really good ones. Uh, They made me think and realize, wow, yeah, you guys have really good brains. (laughs) I'm a little intimidated. Um, But again, no easy questions. So I'm going to give myself some more easy questions because I can't just dive into these huge questions to you guys. Okay. So first question, what's my favorite ice cream? Which is a really good question because yes, I do love ice cream. It's kind of a bad habit of my husband and I's that we eat ice cream nearly every single night. Not so much now, but up until the last year, we ate ice cream at least six nights out of seven every week. And my tastes have changed over the years. After I had my second son, it was all chocolate all the time. So what I do now is Wise Markets, where we are. We have Wise Markets and Giant Foods. Uh, Those are the two big grocery stores. But at Wise in particular, if they ever stop making this, I'm in trouble. They have an Extreme Moose Tracks. So Normal Moose Tracks is like a vanilla ice cream with some fudge and then like peanut butter cups, I think. And then they have a chocolate mousse tracks, which is chocolate ice cream with fudge and the peanut butter cups, like little mini peanut butter cups. And then there's extreme mousse tracks where they just eliminate that peanut butter in there and say, look, we need more chocolate. And they do chocolate ice cream with chocolate fudge and then chocolate little cups, that's my favorite. I cannot eat anything else because I love it so much. Every once in a while, I'll get something else. But then I just want to go back to my extreme mousse trucks. Uh, it used to be that I would love mint chocolate chip. My favorite was Turkey Hill because they don't have the big chunks of chocolate that get stuck in your teeth. And then you're just like trying to eat ice cream, but stuff is stuck in your teeth. I can't do that. I do not do nuts in my ice cream. If it's creamy, it needs to be creamy which is opposed to my like my younger self was fine with that not nuts but i went to a school in vermont for a summer to study russian it's called middlebury college and they had a fantastic cafeteria and in the cafeteria they had tubs of ice cream that you could just dip out your own ice cream and every single lunch i would have their peppermint ice cream and it would have little chunks of peppermint like um Candy cane, like chips of candy cane in there. I ate that every single day for the entire time I was at that school. So, yes, I'm an ice cream fan. Chocolate is where it's at. I will sometimes do things with peanut butter, especially if I'm getting a sundae out somewhere. This is a long answer. Yes, I know. It's an ice cream answer. So, it's worth it. So, if I'm out getting like an ice cream sundae, I'll put hot fudge and whipped cream and peanut butter sauce. So, I'll do peanut butter sometimes. But usually, it's like mint. And definitely chocolate. Lots of chocolate. I don't go for fruity flavors with ice cream. Fruit is for fruit. Ice cream is for creamy things. So there's there's my answer for what's my favorite ice cream? Favorite flowers. What's my favorite flowers? You know, I'm going to skip this one because I have too many answers and it's going to take too long. Sorry not sorry. (laughs) But if my husband gives me flowers, I tell him every time, don't mess around. It's kind of like my chocolate. Don't mess around with anything else. Just get me roses. That's what I like if he's going to get me flowers. And then last question, where was I born? Oh, excellent question. Thank you for that. I was born in South Carolina. It's super random because we don't have any family ties in South Carolina, my family. But me and my siblings are all born in different states. Um, My parents just kind of traveled around a bit. I was born in the state where my dad did seminary. He graduated from seminary, I think, uh, a couple of months after I was born. And then we moved to Guam after that. So that's why I was born in South Carolina. And I used to call myself a rebel. I used to be very proud of being born in the South. Now it's like, whatever, it doesn't matter. (laughs) I'm still proud of it, though. I should be honest. Okay. So let's move on. We have two big questions and you'll see why I needed some like <laughs> lightness in there because these are doozies. Like the last two questions were pretty heavy duty. These do not get any lighter. So the first one is the easier one cuz I need to work up to the second one and you will you'll need that too. The first one was from somebody that had read Jeremiah 29:11. And we'll read that verse in a minute. And she asked, can this be applied to Christians? And that's a great question to ask about lots of things in the Bible. How and can this be applied to Christians? So let me read this verse. And this is the NIV. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. So it's a pretty well-known verse, and it's a lot of people's favorite Bible verse. It's very hopeful. It sounds happy. (laughs) It sounds very pleasant. It's God promising good things. What are other verses like this that people call their favorite verse, but it's a little bit out of context? Uh, The first one that came to mind for me was Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So, I, I, I just got to thinking about favorite Bible verses and why do people have these Bible verses and how do we think about Bible verses in general and how to apply them to Christians. So we're going to kind of take Jeremiah 29 11 as an example of how to interpret scripture for personal use, right? Can it be applied for personal use? How do you do that? And there's really a very simple, easy way to do that while still understanding the context and the meaning for the original audience of the verse, okay? So that's what we're going to do with this question. We're going to kind of turn it into a specific and a general answer. So that specific verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, it's addressed to Israel. It's not talking to the church. This is before Jesus. So it's talking to Israel. And it's a very hopeful verse. And in general, t- I'm talking about anybody, it's reassuring that God knows the future and that the future includes good things. And so we have things to look forward to. So the question that I got, can this verse be applied to Christians? The fun part about this is that I started to look into this stuff. I started reading Jeremiah 29, 11, and I was thinking about it and writing stuff down. And I got kind of bored and I took a break. And then two days later, I started reading in my quiet time wherever I was reading. and the next section was Jeremiah 2911. And I had totally forgotten about this question. I was just reading my Bible and I was in Jeremiah and I ran into Jeremiah 2911. And so I was understanding the context of the verse strictly from reading the passages around it. right I wasn't trying to understand Jeremiah 29/11. I was reading Jeremiah. So let's get the context, right? Jeremiah is really a rather unpopular, unloved prophet in Judah after the deportation of the Jews to Babylon. He and some other Jews are left behind in Israel, while there are many others already in Babylon. And there's lots of false prophets running around saying, hey, we should fight these nasty Babylonians. God doesn't want us under their thumb. Uh, we are the people of Israel, we should have autonomy. And the Jews in Babylon are wondering, how long are we going to be here? And should we be like the Israelites in Egypt, pushing back against the regime, looking forward to like an exodus? And like, should we, should it be like on the Passover, where we have all our stuff packed up and our shoes on, ready to go, get back to our land? And Jeremiah is the not so lucky guy who gets to prophesy to these people that no, you're going to be there a while and you should go ahead and plan like you're going to be there a while. Plant gardens, get jobs, and try to bless. Get this try to bless Babylon because whatever happens to Babylon happens to you. If it prospers, you prosper. So God is telling them go ahead have kids, go get ice cream, plant trees. Trees take a longer time to grow. It's not like a garden where you just rip out the plants the next year and start all over again. He's saying plant vineyards, plant trees. You're going to be there a while. And I'll bring you back to Israel like I promised. And he says in verse 11, because I know what's going on and I want it to be for your benefit and well-being, I'm not trying to punish you or make your life miserable. I want you to have hope and know that there is a way forward. Okay, that's the key part. I want you to have hope and know that there is a way forward. Okay, so that's the context for the Israelites at the time of Jeremiah. So how can or is it even possible for a modern Christian to apply this? Well, some people would say, we're going to go through the different, uh, different interpretations that you can have. Some people would say, well, this is talking to Israel, so we cannot apply it to ourselves. Other people would say, we Christians are the modern fulfillment of the nation of Israel. We're the true sons of Abraham, so we can straight apply this no matter what, right? Both sides are pretty extreme there. And there's a middle road. We'll take the middle road. And the middle road is very... Very logical, and anyone can think through any passage of the Bible this way and find ways to apply it to themselves, even if you were not the original audience. Which, guess what? Nobody is the original audience anymore because they're all dead. (laughs) So, you know that you're not the original audience, you're not who is being directly talked to most of the time. I guess, in parts of Revelation, there are some that you can say that you're the audience, but most of the original audience is gone. So here's what we do, since we're not the original audience. We are not who the Bible is written to. The Bible is written for us, but not to us. We're not the original. So here's what we do. We understand the passage in its context for what it was supposed to mean to the original recipients. In this way, let's talk about what Jeremiah is doing. Jeremiah is delivering a message to 5th century BC Jews that they were to submit to God's plans for them, even though it sounded counterintuitive and didn't match a previous experience that they had been in. And I'm referring to Egypt. They had been in exile, basically, in Egypt before. And there they were told, let's get out of here. You got to be ready to move on. Here they're being told, settle down, relax, find a job, find an employer, work with your cousin, do something, you're going to be there a while. So it didn't match what had happened in their past, but it did match what God had been sending prophets about for hundreds of years already. And God provided checks to show people who the legitimate prophets were. I really love this. I really like that God allows us to be skeptical and fact checkers and says, here, here's how you can check the facts. I'll give you a way so that you know who is telling the truth. So Jeremiah had prophesied against the false prophets that they would be executed by Nebuchadnezzar and they were. (laughs) So you would know the prophets that got executed by Nebuchadnezzar We're not the ones telling the truth. God gave that prophecy to Jeremiah. So that's the context. God is saying, look, this looks bad, but I know what's going on. And it's been a part of my plan. We've literally talked about this before by many prophets. And I still have your best interests in mind. And I still have plans for you. And I still have things for you in your future that are good. And you need to go with this plan. So he's also, another point, he's also talking to Jews collectively. He's talking to the nation of Israel. He's talking to the Jews of Babylon, not to one guy, not to one person, not to one individual. And he's talking to them when they are confused, maybe in despair or depressed, and putting their lives on hold because they don't know how to handle anything anymore. I wouldn't either. If I'm pushed into another country and told, obey. I'm like, really? Should I plan on moving back to the US? Is it okay to obey this government because they're really corrupt and I don't know what to do, right? They don't know who to count on. They don't know how to think about their jobs, their careers, who to work with, who to work for, whether they should plan on moving on or invest in their present. So my question for you, have you ever felt any of those things? And I would hope that your answer would be yes, because that's a lot of things that seem pretty universal, right? I think we've all been in a spot where we don't know how to plan for the future or the present. We don't know which choice to make, and we don't know which is the most stable or the most wise decision. And so it's that's the Jews in Babylon. They don't know who to trust, and they don't know if and when their lives will be uprooted again. So God says, I know what's going on, I know where this is headed, and I want you to settle down and pray for your community and not try to damage it, not try to rebel against it, not try to have um, civil disobedience or civil unrest. What good you bring to it, to Babylon, will also be for your benefit. So the principles at work are God's sovereignty, meaning his control over situations, his omniscience, knowing everything in the situation, and the fact that he wants to bless his people. He wants his people to trust him and rely on him for wisdom and direction, for decision making. And he's reassuring them that no matter the situation, there will be good in it, both short term and long term. And so I think we can understand all that in the context of Israel in exile in Babylon. It makes sense, right? We can understand a people feeling that way and having these kinds of problems. So let's return to the original question. Can we apply that to ourselves as Christians living in the, what is this, 21st century, right? Yeah. Uh, the trick to checking this is to first, number one, look at what it says about God, And check to see, is all of that still true? And this one needs to be true, but it's a good way of starting this process off. Does God speak to people today? Yes. Okay, good. Is God still sovereign? Yeah. Okay. He's still in control of situations. Does God still have plans? Are they for our benefit? Does God want us to have hope? These are things that are still all true about God. None of these things have changed. The next one that is a little bit tricky is, are the plans for Israel the same as the plans for modern Christians? And I would say in some ways, yes. In other ways, no. But in some ways, definitely yes. What we need to be careful about with interpreting this verse is saying that it means happy, comfortable things that we want basically, if we were deciding what kind of good God wants for us, then we're manipulating the passage. All it says is that God wants us to have a future and a hope. That's good things, but it doesn't say specifically what good things. So if we try to force it to mean specific good things that we specifically want, that's when we're twisting it to match how we want it to be true, what we want to get out of it. We want it to mean that God wants what we want, that God wants us to not have difficulties or trouble. Instead, it means that there are going to be troubles and difficulties. That's the context. Living in Babylon automatically means having troubles and difficulties. And in spite of that, God still has plans for good and hope. But the trick is we always have to put that into the context of what God means and not what we want it to mean, okay? But within that context, yes, absolutely, we can apply it to ourselves. And in that way, most anything written in the Bible can be applied to us, right? So if we look at a passage and say, okay, are all of these things still true about God? Does he still want X? Does he still treat us with Y? whatever the case may be. Check and make sure your principles about God are still true first, and they should be. If you have the right principles in mind, they should still be true. And then next check, what does it specifically mean for me? Or what do I want it to mean specifically for me? And if you can divide out those two things, figure out if it's the same or if it's different, then you'll be able to figure out what you're trying to make it mean and what it does actually mean. And that is really, a really valuable thing to have in your interpreting the Bible, okay? So just remember, the Bible wasn't written to us, but it was written for us. That means we're not the original recipients of the Bible, but the principles behind it all still apply, okay? I hope hope that was clear, I hope that was helpful. Jeremiah 29, 11, can we apply it to ourselves? Yes, but we cannot force it to mean something specific when something specific was not mentioned. Okay? All right. That's the first question. That was <laughs> not the easiest question, but it brought up the really good principle of how to interpret scripture, right? The next one <laughs> is a whole different ball of wax. This one last question. This is our last Q&A question. It's a doozy. And this was from a friend that was thinking about a bunch of topics. But specifically, she was wondering, is there a place of eternal punishment for those who don't choose allegiance to God? And I'm wording that really particularly so that we can understand exactly what it means. Is there a place of eternal punishment for people who do not choose allegiance to God? Right? And her question was actually a little bit different from that, (laughs) but again, ball of wax, and I can't go through the whole thing. For people that don't choose allegiance to God, what does that mean? People who aren't saved. So this whole question is a really valid question because, believe it or not, it's not terribly clear in the Bible what happens after we die. We know that because it says that hell was created for the devil and his angels, So, okay, it was created for them. They go there. Where do people go? Do non-believers go to hell to be punished in a lake of fire forever? And I'm mentioning facts that are mentioned in the Bible, but to create a picture and a complete thought about it is a little bit harder than you would think. We know there's a final judgment. We know there is an eternal separation from God for unbelievers. We know that there will be wrath and judgment for those who don't choose God. But is it an eternal wrath? So my friend's specific question, like I said, is a little bit too complicated to go into. But I thought, you know what? This is such a great question and ties together so many different answers. We're going to go for it. We're going to talk about death and hell because that's super cheery and what a better way to end, end the podcast season than to talk about death and hell. But it's tied to resurrection and life So don't worry, we won't end this episode all depressed and sad. So I'm going to throw out there that, um, and we'll talk about more specifics for this in the next episode. But if we do a next season, I'm going to talk about all of the names of hell in the Bible and specifically what they're referring to. There's Hades, hell, Gehenna, and Sheol and a couple of others. And we're going to talk about them because they actually reference different things. They're not all talking about the same thing when they're mentioned in the Bible. And we kind of gloss over that when we read these. Ah, oh, Tartarus. Yeah, there's a couple more. All right. So that's for season three, if we get there. And we'll talk about that in the next episode. So we're just going to take a snippet of that for here to talk about what do we know about the afterlife from the Bible. So to start that off, am going to start with what happened when Jesus died on the cross. Jesus dying on the cross ties together so many different ideas in the Bible. In John 1, Gospel of John, John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist, his role is kind of like the MC for Jesus' ministry. He introduces him and he introduces him as the lamb of God. He's the perfect sacrificial lamb that the Old Testament laws needed for the covering of sins. But since he was also a man and also God, not just a woolly little sheep, he fulfills bunches of prophecies about a man that would come to set everything right between man and God. And if you know, you should know, (laughs) you should know, that that's the Messiah or the Christ. And we have episodes about that in season one. But I mentioned something in there. He fulfills bunches of prophecies about a man that would come to set everything right between man and God. So many things (laughs) taken for granted in that statement. What's wrong between man and God? So let's go into that. (laughs) See how we're working our way backwards. We can't just talk about death and hell and eternal punishment without understanding all of basically spiritual life, okay? So what's wrong between man and God? Man was under contract to God. And remember this word contract, we talked about the testament or covenant or contract. We have episodes about that. Man was under contract to God to fulfill certain obligations. And we even talked about this just in the previous episode. And every generation of Israel's history simply showed that the contract was unfulfillable. It was possible. It wasn't like God gave them an impossible task. It's that they kept on choosing not to do it over and over again. And in the ancient world, Israel was both the picture and the messenger to the rest of the world of how God interacted with humanity. Let me say that again. Israel was both the picture and of how God interacted with humanity and also the messenger to the rest of the nations of how God interacted with humanity. They didn't do a good job of it, but that's what their job was supposed to be. So when even Israel couldn't do it, God said, I'll send someone who will set everything right because as it is, the world sits under my judgment. My contract has been broken and many have not even chosen to be in contract with me at all. And my contract is the only way to be in right relationship with me. And I'm the creator of the world and the one who can put everything right. So because the world is not in an ideal state and isn't being used properly, people are screwing it up, basically. People are just messing it all up. And I was thinking about this because there's there's a lot in here, (laughs) obviously. But I was thinking about how the world is not okay, right? And we all know it. There's war, there's human trafficking, there's injustice, there's selfishness, there's manipulation, there's greed. Even if you just want to talk about the physical world, there's mold, (laughs) there's disease, there's natural disasters, there's the Pacific trash dump thing that just, you know, the pile of trash that's floating around in the Pacific. Like everything's messed up. We know it's messed up. But we get offended if we hear that God is the way to fix it. And I was thinking, what's offensive about that? We know it's true. We know that the world is messed up. And I think it's just that we don't like to be told what to do. We don't want one person telling us how to fix it. We want to find our own way or feel like we have some control in the matter. So going back, the world is messed up. So what's God's relationship to the bad stuff? What's God's relationship to basically evil? With God's character and how he interacts with evil, with choices and attitudes that reject him and disrespect him, he must judge that. If you read the Bible, which you should, you'll see that even at the times when he's judging, which is all through, think about any prophecy in the Old Testament, most of it is pretty negative. It's about judgment, but you, if you read it, if you go through it, you'll see that even at the times when he's judging or talking about judgment, he's giving hope and promises and second chances every step of the way. And I actually found it really downright to ridiculous how often God gives people another chance, like people that you don't think should be given more chances. He gives them more chances. So back to the idea of evil and sin, God must judge sin. And sin and evil, by the way, are just things that reject God. Uh, We've had podcast episodes that talk about sin, sin, iniquity, and transgression. Remember that one? And we've had ones about the Messiah and the names of God. All of those would help you understand these topics better. But evil, specifically evil, we haven't talked about before. Evil is the absence of God and what happens when God is not prioritized or respected or obeyed. So I look this, I do this every once in a while. I'll just look something up on Wikipedia just to see what a general answer is. And if you look up evil on Wikipedia, it tells you that it's just the opposite or absence of good. It's not that it's not a thing. It's the absence of a thing. So here's another analogy to help us understand that. When we talk about the vacuum of space, we're talking about where there's nothing. And that's hard to imagine because we live where there is stuff. Even in the air where it doesn't feel like there's stuff, we know there's stuff. You know, air, atmosphere, there's still something happening. Space is where there's nothing. Evil is similar. It's not a thing. It's where there's not a thing. There's no good. There's no improvement. There's, there's no working towards a benefit. It's destruction. It's chaos. It's selfishness and deception and all of the things that just consume and destroy. The Bible is actually full of imagery and analogies for chaos and order, good and evil, right? So, That's why, yeah, I'm not going to get into all of that, but there is a lot of pictures in the Bible that represents chaos, and it is what happens when God removes himself from a situation. He doesn't cause chaos. He doesn't cause evil. It's what happens when God is not there. So when we talk about God needing to judge sin, we're talking about him needing to deal with the rejection of him and the choosing of destruction and chaos. It's not like we could choose God or not choose God, and not choosing God leads to good things. It's not a neutral choice. It's not like chocolate or vanilla. It's God or not God. You can choose God or you can choose evil. Choosing not God means turmoil and dysfunction and instability. And people only like instability and anarchy when the order and structure that was there is not good. Like you choose anarchy or you choose rebellion or you choose instability when somebody like Hitler is in charge. That's when anarchy seems like a good thing. But when you choose instability and anarchy instead of God or a good structure that is God's, you're just choosing defiance and acting like a rotten two-year-old. I think about my three-year-old right now and he's rejecting a lot of order and structure and he's choosing chaos. So chaos is raining on him. Anyway, so when we say that God has to judge sin, it means he needs to restore order and deal with the rejection of him that does nothing good. It just promotes dysfunction and chaos. So we want that. We want him to judge sin. We want him to restore order. We want him to bring stability. We we don't want chaos. We want him to provide goodness and functionality and peace and prosperity. We just typically don't like it when it means we have to follow somebody else's orders, right? We just, we are defiant. It's true. I had a thought a few, no, it's many years ago now, and I still think about it from time to time that A lot of the time in life, in the things that we buy, in the things that we do, in the ways that we spend our time, we are often looking for beauty and perfection. But when we find it outside of ourselves, we get upset, we get angry, we get jealous, we get lonely. So we're always looking for beauty and perfection, but we want it to be in us. Is it okay if God's in charge? Is it okay if he's the beauty and the perfection and we can participate with him in how he wants to make the world beautiful and functional? Or do we only ever want it to be through us? So if we only ever want it to be through us, then we don't really want beauty and perfection in order. We want to be in charge and to be able to express ourselves and be beautiful and admired. <laughs> now I'm just bringing in all sorts of questions in. Anyway. We're just going to drop all of that for a second and go back to our original question. Do people suffer forever in hell when they die if they've rejected God? Honestly, I don't know. We don't have a full or clear answer about that from the Bible. It depends on how you interpret things. We know that those people will be eternally separated from God, and we know that can't be a good thing. Separation from God never means anything good. All good originates and comes from God, so without him there can be nothing good. But there are a few options for what happens after death, okay? So here, here's the options for what can happen after death. First, if you choose to accept God's sovereignty, which is a fact whether you personally accept it or not, then you will be in God's presence after death. How? When? Where? Does it happen immediately? Like in the in the old testament, people went to Abraham's bosom and people talk about that now as kind of almost like a, a waiting room before they went to heaven. Does that happen to Christians now? Probably not, but how does that all work together? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> okay? But we know that we will be in God's presence after death. Second, if you don't choose to accept God's sovereignty, you are refusing his leadership and he will not make you accept it. So you have to be separate from it. It's logical. It makes perfect sense. You're rejecting his authority. So he's not going to force you to accept it. How, when, where, how does that work? What happens? I don't know, but we've already shown how that can't be a good thing. Some people believe that after death, the people that didn't choose God will be annihilated. They won't exist anymore. And that solves the problem of whether there's going to be eternal punishment. doesn't matter. You won't exist. I'm not going to get into that at all because that's a whole different can of worms. I've never really studied that, figured out why people believe that, what's going on there. I know very smart people that believe that. I know other smart people that totally reject that. Not going to even look into it because... Uh, I don't have the time right now. But basically, here's my point. (laughs) When it comes to God's wrath, his response to evil and sin, it's a good thing. And when we think about what happens when people accept or reject God's authority, it's pretty logical. God lets them accept or reject his authority. But he still has to react to what they're doing in one way or another. But our original question of, do people suffer eternally in hell if they reject God's authority? Clearly, I'm not even answering that question. And I'm not even touching on the more complicated question that my friend asked. So I'm not really answering any questions. This is a QA and a where I answered one question and then rambled about a different question that nobody even asked. And um, Yeah. So what what question am I answering about God and Jesus and resurrection and hell and evil? Uh, I'm not answering anything at all. Unless you want to know what it means to be saved and what it means to have eternal life. It means to be eternally together with the life giver, the creator of life, and never separated from life and goodness. That is what it means to be saved. The method to do that is by accepting Jesus as a Savior, as the Savior. And that's what it means to be Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. If you want to know more about that, listen to the Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior episode. But basically, that's why God offers Jesus as a Savior, because we need one. And Jesus was the ultimately perfect sacrifice that God offered. So I basically have gone through what is salvation and why why is there salvation? And yeah, so thanks, Aaron for the question, not question that I didn't answer. Uh, and we're going to end there. <laughs> we're going to have one more episode after this one. Uh, Ryan asked me a really good question like a month ago, and then both of us forgot about it. So I'm kind of holding out to see if I remember what that last question is. And then I'll tell you guys my plans for the next season what we may or may not do. We'll talk about the next episode. Okay. All right, guys. I hope you have a great day and I'll see you next time. Bye.